July 23rd, 1903, the Ford Motor Company sells its first car and, oddly, its 8,000th pair of truck nuts. Welcome to The Revisionists. I'm Brian Flynn. I am Zach Powers. And our returning champion, um, <laughs> favorite of the show, the wonderful Bridget Callahan. Thank you for being here, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, we are back. We are uh, tight as ever. We are living through the apocalypse and we are doing it, people. Uh, (laughs) Guys, how's everyone doing in their bunkers? Uh, You know, uh, uh, bunking, (laughs) bunking, bunking down, I guess. (laughs) I, I feel like that is a euphemism. Like legitimately a euphemism for, I think, uh, fuck stuff. So <laughs> we could, Bunkin I down? could cut that out. Bunking down. Yeah. I've never heard that before, but I'll, I'll take it. I'll use I mean, it. I mean, it's the, the logical leap is there. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it's mostly getting depressed and watching YouTube. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whatever works. <laughs> Man, I I can't think of the last time YouTube has helped me out of a depression <laughs> versus like gently easing me into a, a different depression. It sometimes helps me when I just watch Mountain Goats live performances on repeat until I fall asleep. I think there's something for that. Sure, there's funny people on YouTube you can find if you look. There's there's cats getting adopted and it's like, this cat got a new home. And in week three, they started cuddling up to the owner like you can find that shit (laughs) (laughs) and then three videos later it's all about how the earth is flat because of Mm -hmm. the government yeah and an ad for epoch times (laughs) (laughs) you know i wonder actually if youtube has started to be usurped because why do we need youtube for animal videos when we have tiktok i mean as someone who still does not have a tiktok i definitely I I think that's true for that like very short form thing. There's like long form criticism, movie criticism, and game criticism, and sometimes comedy like stuff that's longer form. That's mostly what I use YouTube for, if I'm being mm-hmm. totally honest. And to watch Taskmaster, one of the best shows. Listener, if you're not familiar with Taskmaster, most of it is free on YouTube. It is a British comedy show, and it is the most fun. There's so much free on YouTube. I really recommend. It's nice. a British okay. comedy show. Didn't know about Taskmaster. I'll write that down. How yeah, old is it? Starts, uh, ongoing for the past seven oh. or eight years. Shit. Uh, okay. p- pick up, pick a middle season and just start start watching. The first two seasons are good, but I think you'll your best intro will be like pick pick season five or season seven, something like that. It's just British comedians being tasked to do the stupidest shit for points. And it's a very simple premise. Every episode is different. The tasks yes. are all different. Yes, yes, it's yes. really great. I really strongly recommend it. It's an easy, fun watch. All right. All right. And this you is... can get radicalized by YouTube ads. Right? <laughs> yeah. having, having an almost 18-month-old, my YouTube search history is like, it <laughs> alternates between mostly like hardcore and metal and then there's just like giraffes and then baby gorillas and then back to back to the most off-putting music i could find 
Um, anyway, speaking of off putting, I, I, you don't strike me as somebody who listens to off putting hardcore music. Yeah. I've never known you to do that literally in my life. I don't know why that's your. Is that your new thing? Are you listening to like hard? Okay, like hardcore is neurosis not. Hardcore and, is not <laughs> accurate. Maybe more like more like the edgy like more melodic songs, more yeah, melodic, more em- but in their dark period. <laughs> I'm literally wearing a cardigan right now. I I can't. I there's nothing I can say to come back against this. Um, by Ockerville River is actually pretty intense, man. <laughs> Did you ever listen to do you remember um the AJJ album? Good luck, everybody. Uh, I like Andrew Jackson G. Uh, well, now they're just called AJJ. Yeah, just AJJ, but that that last one, Good Luck Everyone, that came out in like, I don't think I've heard it. No. Oh, oh I, no, no, no. I, I missed I missed, I missed the most recent. Highly recommend it. It's like all I, it was like the album that gave me comfort during the first part of the pandemic because mm-hmm. it was just, it's just like fuck America songs. Um, mm. Normalization Blues is my favorite one off of that one. I think cool. it's an amazing song. Hell yeah. yeah I, mean, I, get my, uh, I get my old Phil Oaks every once in a while when I want to listen to like some like America is shitty stuff, but that's a little outdated because he died a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, he's still relevant. Still relevant. Let's bring him back and just horrify him all over again. <laughs> um, all right, uh, guys, just to get into it, we are wrapping up our series on con artists. Uh, yeah, this is, I believe, the final episode in that run. And it's going to transition into our next topic, uh, anti-fa, anti-fascism, people who fight fascism. Um, and it was going to be pirates, but then listen, if you're upset about it not being pirates, email your email your Congress representative, congressional representatives. We've, we've had some great con artists on this run, and they've had a lot of goals. Most of them were to make themselves money, um, and. As far as this podcast goes, very light topics for the most part. Uh, people who just sell the Eiffel Tower to rich idiots and shit like that. Um, a gold mine, really, for, for what we do. Absolutely. Um, but uh, last episode, we talked about debatably our darkest con artist uh, of the run, I would say. Uh, one L. Ron Hubbard, uh, whose goal was to start a religion and live on a boat. Um, <laughs> well, when you put it like that, he sounds fairly benign. Well, and then I he mean, did it. <laughs> that's that's I'll give you this. That man had a wild fucking life and he yeah. could talk some shit and make people believe it. I, I can't take that away. He might be the most successful con artist we've covered, but we're doing something a little different this time. What if you could use the art of conning people for unbelievable good? <laughs> it turns out you can. You can, you can, you can. Talk some bullshit uh, your way into saving thousands of lives, it turns out. Uh, so we're going to talk, uh, one of our episodes, we're going to talk about a bona fide, uh, honest-to-God hero. Um, we're talking about Raoul Wallenberg. Just for reference, our L. Ron Hubbard episode results not finalized yet. So mm-hmm. we are uh, we were lucky enough to have actual L. Ron Hubbard on that episode. Um and he gave his account of our lives, his life versus the one that uh, is commonly reported among um, people who don't believe a word he says. <laughs> um, 
and we'll uh, we'll we'll let you know uh, next time what the results are. But today we're talking about about Raoul Wallenberg and and uh, uh, Bridget uh, was so kind as to provide the actual story of uh, Mr. Wallenberg. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I want to ask you first because uh, I was I thought his name I thought you said his first name was Raoul. That's what I Raoul. I've been... Yeah, I, I I'm just a dumb American, so you know this is a okay. Swedish dude who probably pronounced it Raoul. <laughs> Um, I have not heard it necessarily. I've read about him, but I haven't heard it said. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's why I was like, oh, have I been saying this wrong the whole time in my head? Because I was like, oh, Raul. Uh, I feel like yep. that happens every other episode we do. So, so yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, should I just get started? Let's get into it. Let's do uh, it. Absolutely. So, uh, Raoul Wallenberg was uh, a young man who was born in, I think, in Stockholm or near Stockholm um, in Sweden. Um, he was the son of a fairly, fairly rich family. Um, so very, very upper class, just a bunch of really successful businessmen, lawyers, doctors in his family. Um, his uh, grandfather was a diplomat. Uh, so they were very cultured, very worldly, like just cream of the crop European. Yeah, upper, this dude right? had privilege out the ass, uh, yes. I think it's fair to say. Um, and uh, he's a good example of using that to pretty good effect. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's one of the things that I really find super intriguing about this. His story is how much of a young European rich kid he was in the beginning. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So he you know, went ahead and got all the, the advantages of that. He studied in Paris. He went to the University of Michigan uh, to study architecture. So this is interesting. He specifically chose the University of Michigan because the really high Ivy League schools were full of like other rich fucks. And he's yep. like, I don't want to be surrounded by that kind of people. Yeah, I want to go to the school where that is the setting for American Pie too. Yeah. Yeah, well, he did the I mean, naked mile. Then. <laughs> he joined Beta House. It's mm -hmm. Ann Arbor now. You do you think of it as you know it's it's a rich kids school now, but it, it's still not as bad as some of the Ivies. And like back then in like 1931, it definitely, I mean, yeah. it was a it was upper class in that college itself was, but yeah. it was not. It was very like Midwest, right? It was kind mm -hmm. of right. like yeah. the the wannabe great Gatsby's trying to like work their way up into business, right? Um, what's really interesting is that in his class, because I was like, oh, who else went to University of Michigan in 1935? So he actually went to school with Gerald Ford was oh, oh, okay. in his class. And then uh, Arthur Miller was also was like one year behind him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Is... So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that is I for some reason pictured Arthur Miller being like way older. But of course yeah. not. No. <laughs> and then yeah, Gerald no, Ford being like, what? Uh, and I think I read something like this is so that he was 1935 and Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes was like 1939 was the class. <laughs> he All worked right. Arthur Miller on the paper. It was it was so crazy looking into the alumni. It's uh, just like, oh, OK, that was that guy's still alive. I think is Mike Wallace still alive? Feels like. He yes. Yes. Probably soft. Very yes. We're giving soft. Mike Wallace a soft. Yes. on still alive. <laughs> <laughs> um. Also, I was recently listening to a podcast about the life of Gerald Ford because and I, I go hard in the paint. Uh, turns out uh, he had just like the saddest fucking life. 
up until yeah. like um, becoming president. Yeah. Uh, I will say redacted on Mike Wallace passed in 2012. He has been dead for 10 full years. Ah, well, uh, so no, not alive. Um, Sorry. I called you alive. Yeah. A lot of mediocre presidents have very sad lives. Um, yeah. in, including the guy in charge right now. I would <laughs> yeah, that's true, man. It doesn't make you malleable by the powers that be right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Some some yeah. great presidents have sad lives too. Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah. The bad ones usually have pretty good lives. <laughs> yeah, I was going Yeah, like the man who literally has a golden toilet. Yeah. Yeah. So so Raul went to the University of Michigan. Um he studied architecture, got his degree in architecture. Um he was known at the time while he was going there, which kind of ties into what you were saying about why he chose that school. Um is that he even though he came from a rich family, he worked like the whole time he was there and he was a, a rickshaw handler. So you can picture this young Swedish aristocrat uh, driving people around on a rickshaw. Um, he was a big fan of hitchhiking. Uh, yeah. So he hitchhiked a lot. Um, and there's a, there's a quote where he talks about how he like learning to hitchhike and learning to be on the road like that kind of teaches you diplomacy. Right. Mm -hmm. So already what you're seeing is that somebody who like really wants has a wider perspective of class and and yeah, yeah absolutely. He 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 was he was uh in fact uh robbed at gunpoint while hitchhiking at one point and he was like uh they seemed very scared and very desperate in many ways. I think they were more frightened than me by the experience and he was robbed and thrown in a ditch and he was like well i'm gonna keep hitchhiking because it's a really good way to meet different kinds of people <laughs> <laughs> i missed that in my like in my research jesus i think that says a lot about his bravery right there right yeah. like i'm putting you're so interested in the the perspective of other people that you're not worried mm -hmm. about yourself so mm -hmm. um, well and I've to be like empathetic enough to recognize that the person yeah with a gun demanding your money is like also like scared yeah yeah, yeah. now i maybe maybe you know a little bit about more about this because i couldn't find much on this uh except a couple references to uh being strongly considered that he was gay um and was a closeted gay uh, i don't know uh, a lot about that a lot of times with these figures there's like a lot of um sort of uh speculation but it's often hard to corroborate before a certain mm -hmm. point which is pretty recent uh so uh yeah but i don't know of any um romantic interests of his that are like well defined or or, or anything like that yeah and so I, I i mean just i don't know i could see if i was going to like expound on that idea i could see this like young closeted rich kid being really motivated to like go out and explore and find other like, understand other people versus mm -hmm. staying in his little social class because uh, you know i think that I'm, I'm trying to think of some other names here but i feel like there was a, a certain class of kids coming from european aristocracy that really that was kind of spurred them on you know that being closeted and going and finding there was like very much a time where you were forming your own kind of artistic communities and cultural communities mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, anyway, well, I just thought that was really interesting. I like that mm -hmm. idea. I mean, I think of um, previous subject from way back, way back when on the show, uh, Sir Roger Casement, mm -hmm. who again, um, 
mostly pretty closeted, um, but also helped expose like the abuses in the Belgian Congo and uh, fought for Irish independence. Um, and it's legitimately to me, like one of my favorite figures to like read about from history. Um, who he definitely had a very similar thing going on. Well, right. You don't, you, your family probably is pressuring you to come back home and get married and have kids to put on the mm-hmm. line, right? Go out on an adventure, right? Go out and find other parts of the world. So I think there was a, a, a group of people coming from Europe at the time that were like that. But anyway, so, uh, so just a very, you know, much as I love to hate on trust fund kids, <laughs> in- <laughs> uh, this guy was really doing doing his best to like carve out a different perspective for himself. Very much the um, exception rather than the rule for trust fund kids. So yeah, yeah, don't worry, listeners, you could, they're a okay to still fucking yeah, just sure. roast. Unless you are a trust fund kid, in which case take inspiration from this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's so worth after- noting prior to even going to college, like a lot of his education was done by his grandfather who yeah. was extremely, extremely interested in, keeping him away from like the interests interests of the bourgeois and mm-hmm. having a more worldly like rounded education provided to him sure yeah. all right well he did uh make one miscalculation which is that an architecture degree from university of michigan does not get you uh allow you to practice architecture sure. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so, uh, he got this degree and then he was not able to get a job as an architect uh, so he went ahead and, and took advantage of some family connections, um, started working for a bank in, I'm going to mispronounce this name. I always do Haifa. Am I saying that right? Is that the I, name of the city? Haifa, I think. Haifa? I mean, your guess, is, your guess is as good as mine. Well, we'll say Haifa. I think that might be more correct, but it's in, uh, in what is now present day Northern Israel. Yes, um, sure. I think so- that is Haifa. Yes. Yeah. So he was working in the area, um, you know, Hitler was chancellor of Germany in 1933. So we're talking now, like he's been in, you know, in Germany for a couple of years and stories are starting to circulate around Europe. And so while he was working in Haifa, he would hear and talk to a lot of German Jewish refugees that were coming into the area about things that were happening in Germany. Um, and then in the early 1940s, once again, used another family connection um, to start working at this export import trading company um, that was owned by this very rich Swedish uh, Jew named Kalman Lauer, um, who's a Hungarian Jew, but living in Sweden. And he uh, was essentially, he was the owner of the company, but Wallenberg kind of moved up there very quickly. One of the reasons he kind of moved up and he became joint owner, I think within a couple of years, uh, was that in 1938, the kingdom of Hungary uh, started passing a lot of anti-Jewish legislation on their own. And in 1941, Hungary officially became one of the Axis powers aligned with Germany. Um, So Kalman could no longer travel from his place, his business place to Budapest or Germany or occupied France. So Raul became the face of the business uh, because he could, he could, he could travel to Germany, travel to France, um, travel to Budapest to look after any kind of business partnerships. Um, This gave him a really interesting experience that he uses later because essentially 
he got an inside look at all the bureaucratic machinations of um, the Nazis, right? So like he really became, when it came to getting things in and out, you're talking about like importing and exporting and all that kind of paperwork and knowing the people in the, you know, in those positions and making connections. Um, this was really his training ground for this was having to fill in for Lauer because Lauer couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of things, let me look, I have to look at my dates because <laughs> there's a lot of this going on here. Um, so he's traveling back and forth. He's doing a lot of business trips all over uh, Nazi occupied Europe. Um, we're at 1944 now. And the mass deportation of Hungarian Jews to extermination camps in Poland uh, is ramping up. So in 1944, the reported number is, I think, 12,000 deportations a day. When we say deportations, we mean to Auschwitz and other camps like that. Yeah, Yeah. this is the point where the, I mean, the full death camp part and starts pretty late in Nazi era, like it's in like, early 43 or something like that but at this point it's like we're gonna Mm -hmm. lose this war and they're like well we're gonna take out as many people as we can yeah um i should i kind of skipped over something here so uh 19 this was i don't know 1941 is what the date but i essentially this little tidbit was that wallenberg in the middle of this war became really inspired by this British propaganda film that he saw called Pimpernel Smith. Did you read about this? Yes, I did. I have never read or seen or heard of this movie. I kind of want to watch it now, uh, now that I have a title for it. But it essentially was a a British movie. It was an anti-Nazi propaganda movie they put out um, where um, Leslie Howard actually rescues um, Jews. And mm-hmm. so apparently Raul was very inspired by this, right? So he's got it in his head that there is there is this thing in there, you know, he wants to be involved in this heroic venture, right? Um, but that's not, I mean, that's that's like you or I going and being like, okay, we need to get these kids out of cages on the border, right? Like you can say that, mm-hmm. you don't really have like a, a set way that you're going to do that, right? So you yeah. carry it in your heart and you're like, well, I want to do something, but I don't know. What oh, me being like fight clubs, fucking dope. I want to start a fight club. <laughs> um, I, I want like to start a boondock saints. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so back to 1944. Okay. So Raul is living in this. He's working in it. He's already uh, feeling this, you know, desire to do something about this crisis that is not just building, but has already exploded, right? This mm-hmm. full blown uh, genocide. And in 44, there are a couple of documents that get leaked out to the international community, right? So um, I am not, this is part where I'm a little, I'm not the best World War II historian, like when it comes to timelines. So you guys probably know it's a little bit more, but in 1944, I think you're still really like when they were ramping up the camps is when we were really starting, Americans were really starting to become aware of it themselves. Um, Is that correct? Um, I mean, to an extent, um, the the most popular knowledge of sort of like the the death camps of, say, Auschwitz uh, wasn't really widespread um, until after the war. But of course, Americans knew about the concentration camps um, and the labor camps where people were being starved and worked to death, uh, even if they didn't know like 
the how the extent of it. Yeah, and I think, and it's just briefly like basically uh, up until 1942, they were pretty much like labor camps that a lot of other oppressive governments have. And then after the Wannsee conference in early 1942, they were like, we're just going to turn them into death camps, which Mm -hmm. was kind of a a brand new thing. So it was pretty late in the the run of the Nazis, which started in 1933, that they actually actively were like, we're going to start using, these are going to be death camps. And Mm -hmm. I think not long after that, I think, I think high level people knew kind of what was yeah. going on well yeah. this will this will bulk up that idea so it, the there's two documents leaked to like i said the international community but it lands in the hands of, of franklin d roosevelt right um and it is one of them is they think was a, a truncated version of the auschwitz reports you know that just like uh somebody copied it and was trying to pass it out um mm-hmm. but another one is a six-page report detailing all of the deportations of the Hungarian Jews, um, which at that point is like 435,000 that have been deported at that point in the war. Um, So Roosevelt goes ahead and uh, creates the WRB, which is the War Refugee Board, um, inspired by this. And the War Refugee Board is specifically um, an initiative to set up a rescue operation. And uh, it works out of Stockholm, there's a spy center set up in Stockholm. It was run by um, a spy named Ivor Olson. He was like a treasury official. Um, and they sent him out there to organize this rescue effort from Stockholm. Um, and Olson goes out and he starts recruiting prominent Swedish Jews for this committee to kind of fund and organize this effort to rescue Jews from Hungary. Um, one of those rich Swedish Jews is Kalman Lauer, uh, Wallenberg's ex- partner. I, I mean, current partner, I think at this point, right? Yes. Um, Sorry, I meant well, to sound more certain about that. No, I believe because Wallenberg's still working for the, his company. That's the whole yes. point of it. So they're still partners, unless Lauer left at that point. I don't know. But um, so he's on the committee. Uh, Wallenberg was not actually the committee's first choice. Um, they had another candidate. I don't know why they rejected the other candidate. Uh, he was Swedish aristocracy. I don't know if that had something to do with it. Um, but Wallenberg is then um, put forth as a candidate by Lauer. And he's not immediately approved either because the U.S. authorities are like, oh, we don't know. This guy has a lot of business interests in Germany, right? The Wallenberg family, pretty tied up uh, economically with German and European business. But yeah, and like his I remember reading his brother was like actually a Nazi. Yeah, prob- probably. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. His family seems pretty. Who knows? I'm not going to comment on that. I don't know. <laughs> Again, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was just like one of those people who's really into Nazis. I don't uh, I don't know. There's probably a lot of great, like a lot of big spectrum of that in, among the aristocracy at this point in Europe. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Wallenberg was a hard sell. Um, they were not, he was not supported by the U.S. as the, as the person to lead this, but he had all these business relationships. Um, so he had a structure to, to, to start with. Um, and so they, they go ahead and they put him in charge of this rescue effort. Um, the effort actually started 
the rescue operation started July of 1944. Um, so I think roughly mm, less than half of the Jews that were in Hungary at the beginning of the war were still there. It was like 230,000 were left. Um, and what Wallenberg did uh, is he worked with a bunch of other people to make these fake passports, um, protective passports, they call them. Um, and these essentially were passports, paperwork that said, this person is a Swedish subject and, you know, should be returned to Sweden, right? Like mm -hmm. is protected by the Swedish government. Um, so they start making these fake passports and uh, trying to give them out. Um, there's this famous and, story. Oh, yeah. Th these are they just put all these bullshit stamps that don't mean jack shit. All, like he's putting <laughs> stuff on them just to make them look official. None of this stuff means anything. Right. Like he's just yeah. trying to make them look like as official as possible with all these stamps and icons and shit. But there's nothing backing this up. The government's not backing this up. It's just pure bullshit. Yes. Uh, but like, really, I mean, this is I was wondering why you guys had picked him as a con for you were like, it's the last one of the cons. And I was like, really, he's not really a con man. He's like a hero. And, then yeah. this point, and like, this is where I think the skills of the con really came into play because Wallenberg knew that you can just, if you just, if you confuse and intimidate people, you can get away <laughs> with a lot, right? Yeah. So you've got all these people, all these bureaucrats, all these soldiers who are just, you know, the, the peons of these programs, just throwing paperwork and stamps at them, um, daring them to try and, and say otherwise, right? Um, there's a very kind of famous anecdote about Wallenberg um, where he, you know, one of the, trains going to the death camps had stopped and he gets up on a train car and is trying to pass these paperwork through to the Jewish men and women inside the train. And uh, the soldiers are trying to stop him and they start shooting at him and he doesn't stop. He's just keeps trying to give every, you know, just pass through as many as he can through the train car. Um, and uh when the account I read of it, which, you know, granted was just Wikipedia, so <laughs> I don't know, but the account I read was that like one of the witnesses, like they must've just been shooting over his head. They must've not, because if they had been shooting at him, they would have killed him, but he doesn't get shot and he gets away. Um, and like so they suddenly become stormtroopers. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess they're Nazis. Like, they oh, are stormtroopers. I kill this person? I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. Or I mean, you could also make an argument that, you know, maybe there were sympathizers too there. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and they were making a show of it. But so this is how ballsy this guy is, is that he is just, nope, we're going to get this in as many hands as we can. Um, the other. And, and he gets people out of that train, like mm -hmm. legitimately it works. Like he saves a number yeah. of people from those trains just by like canning all these passports and talking to these guards and being like, these people have my passports. You have to let them out right fucking now. And they do it. Uh, I don't know. He's got he, he's got a few compounds, which he actually uses his architect skills to maximize the capacity of these compounds. Right. Like he greatly, like hugely increases the number of people who can stay there. And like he's like, these people are working for me. And, and many of them do do jobs of various types. And he I mean, they're not being paid because he doesn't have any money. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, in the scheme of things. It's yeah. like, yeah, okay. 
I mean, I, I think this is the first time in my life I'll say this. Thanks, University of Michigan. You, you did good. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so he, um, he actually ends up renting out like uh, 32 buildings in Budapest. Um, and this was the kind of fun trick that he did. Uh, fun is a weird word to use in the story, but um, he declares them all extraterritorial. So that gives these buildings diplomatic immunity. <laughs> and he camouflages them with Swedish flags literally everywhere. He's naming them like the Swedish library and the Swedish uh, consortium and like just Swedish everything, Swedish flags everywhere, putting out this appearance of like, this is Swedish property. You cannot go here. And um, he's houses like 10,000 people in these buildings over the course of them being used. Um, so my favorite part of the whole story. Yeah, just like camouflage it with Sweden flags. I, yeah. <laughs> the, there's another trick that he pulls a little bit later when things ramp up and the war's going especially poorly and they stop kind of caring about like the jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. He finds the most Aryan looking people who are residing at those places and puts them in uh, Hungarian fascist uniforms and stations them outside the building. So that it looks like the Hungarian fascists are in control of the building and they won't search. (laughs) Amazing. And also, you know, duh, like, right. Like that. Yes, that is what you should do. Absolutely. Like at a certain point, he might as well just grab like the rifle barrel of a Nazi and just turn it backward. So it's facing him. (laughs) Uh, It reminds me uh, on a much different level I was uh, I was driving from Denver back to North Carolina, like in a particularly bad time of the last couple of years. Uh, and I was like, oh, I should cover my car with like Trump stickers to get through Kansas. So no one will pull me over and get me pulled over for Um, So I'll hail the camouflage check. I think yeah. I, I yeah, I just I I think I'll never look at the Swedish flag the same way without thinking of those buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Sweden really deserves that credit, but, <laughs> but there you go. All right, so he saves a ton of people this way, right? The numbers of how many people he saved vary wildly. Um, some people are like, he saved 100,000 people. Other people are like, he saved 10,000. Um, there was something I read that was like, it was probably more around like 4,500 people, like 4,500. Um, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle between 10 mm-hmm. and 12, right? Um, regardless, more people than I've ever saved. Uh, <laughs> More than a 9-11. More than a couple 9-11s, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, Even yeah. the lowest estimate is, is more than a 9-11. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, that so, standard unit of measure. I mean, I guess I, no, I fucking use that a lot of the time to measure numbers of people. Standard. Yeah, I, we use that a lot. Oh, that's a weird, that's a weird revelation. We do use that as a unit of measurement. Yeah. And all right. Well, okay. So um, he quickly becomes. Oh, and I will say for reference, Oscar Schindler saved about 1,200 people. Yeah. That's a good reference. So this guy. Step your shit up. Should have had a movie made about him, right? Has there ever been a movie made about him? Yes. I don't know why there hasn't. Uh, yes. There should be a bigger one because Not in America. this story is fucking crazy. Yeah. 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 There's been movies made in Sweden, I believe. Hmm. Let me see. Okay, so basically he becomes, you know, he's a huge figure in the Budapest um, underground movement uh, in the resistance. 
Um, he is sheltering and protecting refugees. He's getting people kind con- you know, safe conduct out of the country. Um, he's working with all kinds of different spies from different areas. Um, there's, you know, he's working with people from MI6. He's working with the Dutch. Um, he starts like having to move around himself because he's such a targeted well-known figure at this point. Right. So yeah. he's just kind of Adolf like- Eichmann, I think called him something like the, the Jew dog or the Jew rat, something like that. Uh, yeah, he was, he was like enemy number one at a, mm-hmm. yeah. a certain point. Um, so he is, ba- he's enemy number one in Budapest. Um, the Soviet army occupies Budapest and um, one of his last acts before the Soviet army comes in is that he tries to persuade the occupying Germans to um, stop a plan to blow up the Budapest ghetto and murder all the, the Jews that are left there. Um, There's, yeah, I, I think one of the, go ahead, I'll, I'll, I'll add after. No, go ahead and add on, because I don't know, I did not find a lot of information about that. So, so the guy, there's uh, near the end when it was clear the Soviets were coming in, um, and this is a big part of the potential 100,000 figure, Yeah, uh, is uh, Eichmann was like, okay, we're not going to get these people um, like sent out to camps or whatever, but we can just kill them. Like we can do uh, basically them. one of the biggest mass shooting murders of the entire war. Uh, like Bobby Yar is like the biggest mm-hmm. one that actually occurred. Um, and he orders this guy in charge of Hungary to like find every single Jewy can in Hungary and just shoot them all in like a mass, mass, mass slaughter. Um, and they, the Nazis stopped doing this because the people who did it tended to kill themselves and become alcoholics and stop functioning. But um, this was the end of the war. So they're like, fuck it, we're going to do it. Yeah. And Wallenberg went to the guy in charge, like the main fascist in Hungary and was like, if you do this, I promise you, I will do everything in my power to make sure that you are hung after this war ends. Like you will be hung because I will fucking make sure it happens. And the guy didn't do it. It didn't happen. Doesn't Eichmann get hung later in Israel anyway? Yes. Eichmann does. This is a different guy. This is the guy who was in charge in Hungary who decided not to follow Eichmann's orders. Um, he's like Stump Drummer or something was his name. Hmm. Yeah, um, it's a it's a very tricky name. Yeah. There's like a different uh, fascist faction in Hungary called like the the what was it? The Iron Arrows? The, the Cross the and Arrow the, the Arrow Cross. Arrow Cross. The yeah. Arrow Cross. That's what it was called. Yeah. This guy ran the Arrow Cross. Um, also, uh, if you're interested in a film about Raul Wallenberg, uh, there's Wallenberg, a hero story, which was a 1985 made for TV movie on NBC and then a Swedish movie from 1990 starring Stellan, Stellan Skarsgård uh, called Good Evening, Mr. Wallenberg, which sounds more like oh, that's a very lighthearted team. For- yeah, which is not not the title I would go with. And then that's oh, there's also. Raul Wallenberg Buried Alive, which is a documentary, and then Raul Wallenberg Between Between the Lines. Um, uh, his name was Wallace Schmidt Duber. <laughs> oof, that's that is that's unfortunate. 
Yeah. Well, I don't know what happened to that him, guy. But... None of us really remembered his name. So I guess he lucked out yeah. that way. Have a shitty name if you're going to be a genocidal asshole. Yeah. Um, so I guess for the sake of history. Um, all right. So there's a siege of Budapest. We're talking about October 1944 now. Budapest is under siege. Um, and the Soviets are surrounding them. And the Germans are refusing to give up. And uh, this is when... Wallenberg is called to General Malinsky's headquarters. Um, Malinsky is a, um, let me find him here. I, this is a part I got a little confusing with because he's from the second Ukrainian front, which is the Russians, right? Yes, so it was part of the Russian Red Army. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so he's called to General Malinsky's headquarters um, to answer, uh, he's been accused of spy spying espionage um this part i really liked is that you know he knew he had this meeting he's getting called into the office so he uses this meeting to actually smuggle copies of the auschwitz report to the hungarian government in debrisen which is where he has to go mm-hmm. um so uh his famous last words are i'm going to Malitsky's, whether as a guest or a prisoner i don't know uh, and he goes there to this office and then he disappears. Um, this is where we lose, we, we kind of lose all information. This is where it becomes sort of a conspiracy, you know, like there's a lot, a guessing of, game, a yeah. lot of gossip. Yeah. So um, officially uh, he was declared dead by the Soviets. Um, they said that he died of a heart attack. Um, so he's, he's arrested in January of 1945. Um, the Soviets say that he dies of a heart attack in July of 1947 um, after being imprisoned for a couple of years um, mm-hmm. in Moscow. Um, there's also then reports that come out that people say that they've been in jail with him. Um, years later, people are talking about uh, a prisoner a Hungarian prisoner who's been uh, in the prisons for decades at that point, right? Um, there's never anybody, there's never any kind of uh, anything other than this document from the Soviets saying, hey, he's dead, right? Um, so it becomes a legend of this guy, be, of Wallenberg being alive somewhere in the Soviet prison system um, and nobody knows what's happened to him. Um, and he's not officially, other than that Soviet document, um, there's a lot of investigations launched into his death. Nothing comes up with much. Um, and I don't know, you, do you want to, do you know of any other specific rumors? I know a few details about this. So one, uh, talking about the Swedish flag, the Swedes do not put a lot of pressure on the USSR to save him because mm-hmm. they don't want to endanger relationships. Like even the U S government at one point is like, you should really check this out. And like, they are like, Hey, Stalin, what happened to this guy? And then they're immediately like, we assume he's dead to give Stalin uh-huh. an out immediately. Um, and it, but probably like they see this guy who's doing all this weird shit with all these cons and all this strange stuff going on. They think he's some kind of spy and probably what happened was tragically he was imprisoned pretty good guess he was tortured um and assumedly just died in one of these prison camps at some point hell it could have been that first heart attack i mean you get fucking you live in these camps and live this life like that can take its toll pretty quick but uh the exact details 
unknown. But the Stalin, Stalin, uh, and the USSR definitely, definitely took this guy in, and at some point he passed away. Uh, but the full details aren't known. There's also uh, some rumors that he has been uh, tortured the whole time that he's in prison, right? Like, there's a lot of yeah. Um, you know, I, that the assumption was he was a spy, and yeah. So, um, so yeah. So we never know. Um, that's kind of left at that, but they don't actually s- kind of stop searching for him. So what was interesting is a little story I found. Um, he was officially declared dead um, by Swedish legislation uh, in 2016 because mm-hmm. his family had been attempting to either locate him or find proof of his death because they couldn't settle his estate until mm-hmm. he was officially declared dead. Um, and so I think like his two remaining relatives were both like in their ni- late 90s uh, and the government finally declared that he had died officially. Um, I don't think they, I, it wasn't 1947. They gave it like a couple more years than that. Um, but that finally got settled in 2016. Um, the story was published on Halloween, which I thought was such a weird little inflationary yep. times. Yeah. Um, but that, that was kind of the end of it, right? Um, nobody quite knows what happened to him. Uh, we do know he's dead. Um, at this point, if he wasn't dead, he'd be, very, 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 very old. Um, yeah. And now his relatives can finally get his estate freed up from legislation. So that's kind of the whole end of the story, except for then Wallenberg goes on to be recognized as a very uh, well-known hero in the war effort. So there's a lot of humanitarian awards named after him. Um, there's, uh, God, let me, I'm just going to pull this up here. So he gets, he's designated by Israel as one of the righteous among nations. It's a specific category of, of hero recognition. Um, he's been, he was given a congressional gold medal by Congress. Um, there's a Raoul Wallenberg Committee of the United States that they started in the 80s to perpetuate the humanitarian ideals that he uh, encapsulated. And there's a, uh, a Raoul Wallenberg Award it gives to people who are, are out there doing the same work. Um, let me see. I feel like there was another one here that I'm forgetting. The point is, he's gotten a lot of posthumous awards. Um, so he is definitely a legit hero and uh, probably way cooler than even the story makes it makes him sound. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like we're just like looking at the tip of the iceberg of how cool Raoul Wallenberg actually was. I have a I have a couple uh, additional anecdotes and quotes about him. Um, yeah. First, I want to impress on our listeners: this man went to Hungary in 1944 and disappeared in like mid 1945. Yeah, he did this in a very short period of time. Yeah, um, and he said to one of the family members before he left that his nightmare would be returning from Hungary not knowing he did literally everything in his power to save as many people as he possibly could. He apparently slept four hours a night, basically the entire time he was there switching where he slept because people wanted to kill him. Um, But I have a couple like just anecdotes about, about him uh, from, from firsthand accounts. So uh, as things were ramping up and the war was nearing its end, but before the Russian army was actually in Hungary, 
uh, Eichmann started ordering uh, death marches because the trains were like, couldn't couldn't use the trains anymore. So he would just have these people start walking literally hundreds of miles to um, in the winter to these concentration camps, which I mean, the walk was intended to kill them basically. And when he heard about these, he would just go out with as many cars and Red Cross things as he could muster and just bring as many bits of paper and, and whatever he could and just go to random people on the line and say, this person's one of mine. I know I issued this person a passport. I know I issued this person a passport, just like with these Nazi guards standing there. And the Nazis couldn't speak Hungarian. Um, so they would just like show like their IDs or their pa- anything they had in their pockets. And he'd be like, that's one of mine. That's one of mine. And take them back on as many as he could fit on the cars. And apparently like one of the things he said to the pe- and he saved a few hundred out of you know many many people and one of the things he would say to these people as he left when one account was like he said in in hungarian which the nazis couldn't understand to the people he couldn't save i am sorry i'm trying to take the youngest ones first i want to save a nation which is like Aww. very like um and then like uh there's also a story this one's very dark uh, just so you know uh but some people from one of his camp his compounds got rounded up by the iron cross one night and the they tied them together three together and to save to save bullets they would shoot the person in the middle and throw them in the river uh to kill them and when this happened he found out about it he went to the river with as many able-bodied people as he could and they spent the entire night, hours and hours and hours, pulling people out of the river over and over and over again. Like, even though it was like a freezing river and saved dozens of people. Um, and, you know, it, there's just two two quotes I want to say about this guy that are from, one is from one of the people in his compounds, his where uh, that he like helped, right? Um, one of the young Jewish people. Um, and it's a little bit of a longer one, but if you'll indulge me, I think this mm-hmm. is like a really remarkable story. It's one of my, I think one of the most remarkable people, uh, in, in modern history. Uh, so this person who was in his compound, uh, 13 years old at the time said one morning, there was a group of Hungarian fascists that came into the house and said, all able-bodied women must go with them. We knew what this meant. My mother kissed me and I cried and she cried. We knew we were parting forever and she left me there an an orphan for all intents and purposes. Then two or three hours later, to my amazement, my mother returned and uh, with the other women, it seemed like a mirage, a miracle. My mother was there. She was alive and I was hugging and kissing me and she was hugging and kissing me and said one word, Wallenberg. I knew in that moment, uh, I knew, uh, I'm sorry, it's a little small. I knew uh, who she meant because Wallenberg was a legend among the Jews. Uh, In the complete and total hell in which we lived, my mother said that we were living, uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, very hard to see. Uh, In the complete and total hell in which we lived, there was a savior angel somewhere, moving somewhere. He had, after she had composed herself, my mother told me that uh, they were being taken to the river when a car arrived and outstepped Wallenberg. 
And they knew immediately who it was because there was only one such person in, uh, in the entire world. He went up to the Arrow Cross leader and protested that the women were under his protection. They argued with him, but he must have had incredible charisma and some great personal authority because, he was abs because there was absolutely nothing behind him, nothing to back him up. He stood out there in the street, probably feeling like the loneliest man in the world, trying to pretend there was something behind him. They could have shot him and there would have in the street and nobody would have known. Um, instead, they released the women. And then uh, the last one, which is uh, an Israeli attorney general who honored him as righteous among nations said, here is a man who had the choice of remaining in secure, neutral Sweden when Nazism was ruling Europe. Instead, he left. And this, he, instead he left this haven and went, uh, uh, and went to what was then one of the most perilous places in Europe, Hungary. And for what? To save Jews. He won his battle. And I feel that in this age, when there is so little to believe in, so very little on which our young people can pin their hopes and ideals, he's a person to show the world, which, which knows so little about him. This is why I believe this story of Raoul Wallenberg should be told and his figure in all its true proportions projected into human minds. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you just kind of summed it up right there is like, I, I, I think at some point I remember reading this like somewhere back in college, but the fact that he isn't just one of the heroes we hold forth for any kind of resistance, right? Like, mm -hmm. I remember we had this thing called peace day at my hippie grade school that I went to. Right. And we learned that we, we talked about Dorothy day and we talked about Gandhi and we talked about MLK sure. and like this guy should be in that roster. Right. Like we're talking yeah. about the most it's like a Harriet Tubman figure to me. Yeah. yeah. He is. Yes, absolutely. And it's, in, it's something that is incredibly important to remember right now. Right. Because we're also talking about a guy, he didn't have any military training. I mean, I know he did his compulsory Swedish service. Right. But like that, it's nothing. He didn't, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a soldier. Um, he didn't do this because he was, came from money, right? It wasn't like his money was completely funding all this. He really was just like, oh crap, I'm going to do something. And I, and I'm going to have the confidence and the, I'm not, it's not recklessness. It's like that knowing that somebody else is more important than you motivation, right? Yeah. Like my life, isn't worth it in the face of this, I'm going to do this anyway. Um, which is I some, I, just the thing I think we all need to kind of put inside our hearts right now. You know, I think is, I mean, maybe I'm getting, I, I feel like this is okay to say on this podcast. Oh no, yes, like, 100%. We are, yeah, we are already in a fascist state and we are sliding down further and further. And I feel like in my lifetime, in the next 10 years, it's going to get pretty horrific. And I think that we all need that. This is a guy to be a hero to anyone who considers himself Antifa now. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it, was, it was an amazing choice. And I, I learned a ton from reading about this guy. So I, thank you for, and, I mean, and even to think of like somebody who is uh, obviously like when in these fights, there is, I believe a place for like violent action, but this is a man who did not have yeah. the ability or the means or the yes. training to do that. And he found yeah. a way to save thousands and thousands and thousands of people. 
yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Right. Cause don't we all feel like helpless or in the face of like, what could I do? I don't have a bunch of guns. I don't have a bunch of money or property, but like, no, he just made yeah. them believe him, you know, <laughs> like that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, I mean, this is definitely a record in the first episode where both Zach and I got very emotional um, and I think, again, that, that is at least partially down to the timing of when we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about his story. But I mean, also just thinking about like sort of the macro view, like we talk about, like, you know, numbers of lives saved and we talk about sort of his movements over the years and things like that. But also just the micro day to day level of like, like you were saying, Zach, sleeping four hours, moving every night, just. And the terror. Yeah. It's worth noting that other people who are doing similar things imitated the things he was doing. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it spreads out even farther in that regard. Yeah. He was both like a very good, very good person who was also happened to be very good at the thing he did. Um, So, which is when you get that combination, like those people need to be remembered. I mean, these days, honestly, guys, I don't get a lot of hope from anything. Uh, it has been real fucking bleak in my head and my heart. Um, and, you know, reading about uh, prior, you know, past past fascist states doesn't really usually give me anything to look forward to. Uh, but this is I mean, I got fi- I mean, I feel fired up by this guy. And I do think that, like, uh, you know, you want to make a stencil to start putting around Denver. <laughs> Uh, for people, I, I think this guy should be more of a, a face of yeah everyone around the world who's resisting it's anything right now. Genuinely incredible to me that they haven't made a, a, a huge film about this guy because yeah. some of yeah. these stories, him in that ca- on top of that car with them firing yeah. over his head, like that alone is unbelievable. Yeah, we get the script. Yeah, I mean, it might be one of like that even to hear it described. And like to see that if that just came across like a spec script, I'm sure so many readers would be like that. There's no way he would be that brazen or that. I mean, lucky even, I think, um, enters into it there. Um, But just, yeah, it's unbelievable. And it's it's truly insane that the Nazis didn't even get him. It was was fucking Stalin. It was. Yeah. Yeah, which is also not the first time that thing has come up um, yeah. on our show. Guys, listen, over the last few months, I basically discovered I'm an anarchist. So we're going to get into we're going to get into some more things. Um, anyway, you ready to um, try and do a fake story about this guy? Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> um, look, listeners, um, if you remember back to uh, our Vitold Pileski episode, which was earlier this year i can't remember um it was it was not too long ago um i also had the alternate history for someone who resisted the holocaust um and so here we are again and i'm making the same caveat uh of i this is hard this is a comedy podcast um you know, and we, 
Uh, I was going to say also, we've had a longstanding promise of we will not do the Holocaust. Uh, this is, of course, not we're not obviously going to be ever, 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 ever doing an alternate history that involves someone's experience in the Holocaust could because the moment someone tries that I'm shooting the internet in the head. Um, and so here we are, we're doing this and I'm just talking myself through it. Um, I will say because he has like the con artist skill set and inclination, it was definitely easier to be goofy than I was with Pileski. Um, so I want to, I'm going to talk about specifically, um, the sort of the fake Swedish missions, the, uh, Swedish enclaves that he set up in Budapest. Um, because when he was setting that up, like he got the flags, that was great. That was, you know, if I was voting for that on design home, I'd give it five stars. Uh, just a bunch of Swedish flags everywhere. Um, but like at a certain point, he realized that like doing the exteriors of these buildings wasn't enough. You couldn't just put up a sign that said, you know, the Swedish library or like the Swedish consulate or whatever, um, because inside they were just an empty office. Um, so they he realized they needed to be more. And so like he he scrounged around. Uh, he used his uh, Swedish connections to get like um, just some secondhand furniture to really do like set dressing in each of the offices. Right. Um, but like reassembling the furniture was very difficult. Um, like one time he was almost caught because he was trying to like put it was like late at night. He was trying to put the cabinet front on like a solid oak credenza and it was taking forever and the guards were coming by and, you know, everything, you know, his whole plan would have been shot at that point. Um, so he needed, he realized he needed a way to um, set dress his sort of rock Ridge deceptive office buildings efficiently. Um, there was, I noticed um, in my own research, some rumors who knows if this is true um it i don't know that there's really evidence for it beyond just like a few people who seem authoritative making like s solid sounding conjectures well that's what his life was all about so yeah that's true <laughs> um that he was he was actually affiliated with um oss which was sort of the predecessor to the american cia um back when the cia fought fascists um anyway so he uh he hooked up with his contact there they got in touch with some providers from sweden and they got um sort of a cheaper lighter composite furniture in a modern style that fits sort of the taste in sweden at the time um that was easier to assemble um and had clear instructions um, and it was, uh, packed flat. So you could easily, you could like, if you're walking down the street, you can just like slip it, slip that bookshelf down your pants and no one would notice. Um, and like, he also devised a special tool, um, to 
because he wanted something small that he could fit in his pocket and that no one would really suspect that he was building all this fake furniture for these fake uh, diplomatic offices. So he invented this little L-shaped tool. He called it an Allen wrench. Um, He, of course, also being Swedish, uh, kept some meatballs around for snacking Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of developed a great Swedish tradition of sort of affordable, um, nice looking furniture uh, that people can assemble easily um, and, you know, is made to make sort of slapdash spaces feel more lived in. Um, and I mean, also, easily is debatable sometimes. But. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, I'm I'm sitting in front of three Billy bookcases right now um, that almost killed me. Um, turns out, though, um, <laughs> look, that's the end of the alternate history. We're back in real territory now. I decided to look it up. Uh, the founder of Ikea was a Nazi. So um, that's something that I'm not as shocked by as I should be. No, I know. I mean, neither. Um, There's a few of them. I mentioned, uh, I don't know if this one got used. If not, it's at the end of the episode. We always do all our other alts at the end of the episode. Volkswagen, very much founded by Nazis. Oh, yes. IBM, quite a Nazi organization. Chanel, we've done an episode on Coca-Cola. Yeah, hardcore, Um, hardcore. Yeah, Coca-Cola, when like, the embargo hit uh, when the U.S. entered the war and the German branch of Coca-Cola, which kept operating throughout the Third Reich, uh, couldn't get the syrup anymore. They took like vegetable scraps and like some citrus flavoring and made what is today Fanta. Um, so I know that also yeah. sucks. And that explains a lot. Yeah, it's bad. It's a bad soda. But I'm also- glad that Third Reich had shitty soda. Glad they had. Yeah, they had like weird onion soda, weird like onion and lemon soda. I didn't know that, but I will say I've always been a Pepsi guy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, um, I don't. I don't know what to tell you about Pepsi because it's a soft drink company that has an army. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole another episode, I guess. Yeah, that's that's a that's a more like Reagan era development. Um, I do like your interpretation. I think Wallenberg as the original Yimby is a good, uh, <laughs> good take. Um, good job. Okay, the the IKEA guy. Um, I will say it seems like he was. It's there's some debate whether he was, like, because he was a member of the Swedish fascist party, mm-hmm. um, and Sweden was, you know, as as Bridget mentioned, like officially neutral. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, he didn't have to do that. Right. Like, there's, there's, like, so many times when you discuss people who are in business with the Nazis, like, there's often some gray area with, like, how much they actually themselves were, like, virulently, murderously anti Semitic uh, versus how much they just didn't care or were trying to. Opportunists, yeah. Um, so I mean, that's all of Christian evangelicals right now, yes, right? yeah, 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 none exactly. Of those, none of those people believe in God and Christian values, what they believe in is having their church members come to their car dealership, yeah, you know? so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, but I, uh, 
sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. Uh, this, what you were talking about, did you guys see the story? It was a, it was a couple, a couple of news cycles ago at this point, but right when they start the, the assholes started showing up to protest at like drag brunches and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. In groomer. Right. Um, there was this article from Texas about this group that had come out to protest this kid's drag brunch. And uh, in it, the thing that was striking about it to, to me and to the person who had shown it to me was that it was uh, the leader of the group of the, the anti-drag brunch group called themselves Christo-fascists. They identified as Christo-fascists. And I was really thrown by that because I was like, oh, okay, now you're actually just bringing back this idea of this is a political party that I thought we got over the first time they fucking murdered everybody, right? Um, yeah. So this, I mean, just puts it right at the top. That was, I think, it was a, it was like a month ago, and I have not been in a good headspace ever since because I was like, that is, you know, there's a bunch of signs, but that was that was the one for me that was like the little light bulb of this is this is coming fast, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, and. This is not going to sound as like comforting as I mean it to be, mm. but from because like my my family like has like I come from a family of like journalists. My father, especially, who has like covered racist and extremist groups since like the eighties, um, mm-hmm. and they've sort of always been like pretty unless they were people like David Duke who was trying for more mainstream like credibility, they've always been sort of pretty open, open. about saying that sort of thing. Um, it, they shouldn't, they, I mean, they shouldn't be fascists um, at all. Um, I, if you're listening, you're not, um, you're a piece of shit. Um, so, I mean, part of me hears that and it's like, I, I always hate hearing it, but it doesn't also strike me as anything necessarily that novel about the current fascist period we're living through. No, but I think what got me was just like seeing it printed out as sure. you are openly identifying to a mainstream news source yeah, without any compunction, right? As, as, and, and not as Nazis. I mean, I've heard, obviously, I've heard people identify as Nazis and things like that before. Yeah. But like fascist is a, it, that's a weird term because it, it, it was a political party, right? Yeah. So we think of it, we, in our heads, it's been turned into Nazi, right? Which is also a political party, but, you know, like much more of a ideology, right? At that point. Um, and fascists could legitimately come back as a political party, right? Like it is still a political thing. You can, I mean, there have been lots of countries that have been fat, like openly fascist, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That was the striking part for me. Definitely. But, but I'll take it as comforting. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fascists have always been like this. Um, there's just yeah well, they can't brag about making the trains run on time now because they haven't given us any fucking trains in this country so oh and also like the trains in nazi germany and in like mussolini's italy 
were shit. Like no one liked them. <laughs> like I, it's the smallest, it's the smallest, most insignificant thing to harp on, obviously. <laughs> but like they didn't them. actually make the trains run on time. They made the train shit. So anyway, I am, I'm a big train fan. So mm-hmm. I do. Everyone uh, knows the, that about me. You know, while we're at it, uh, the Autobahn myth. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the Nazis did not develop the Autobahn in the way that people tend to attribute to them. That is not true. They killed a lot of the union people working on the Autobahn who wanted to start a union. Yeah. Uh, and the idea was not theirs. It was it's, it existed before them and they did not develop it well. Uh, they just like liked the idea and tried to herald it as an accomplishment that was not much of an accomplishment. Yeah. Like yep. Elon Musk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Elon Musk to the Autobahn. <laughs> oh man. Oh no. Speaking speaking of people I I hate, like specific people. Um anyway, that is the alternate history of Rule Wallenberg. Uh, Raul Wallenberg, uh, we've been going both. We've been going both ways tonight. Um, however, you want to pronounce it. Yep. Uh, I guess that leaves it to me to do final judgment. Wrap out the episode. Um, before that happens, briefly, Brian, no plug. You, you know, um, uh... I want to say thank you to the people who reached out uh, and bought some baked goods for me to support abortion funds. Um, and hopefully that will be something, um, we're, we'll do again in the near future with a different menu. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out on that and, you know, uh, abortion funds will continue to need your help. Um, we'll also definitely be running that sale to support some other causes that are going to need help. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, really appreciated hearing from everyone and really appreciated um, everyone's generosity. Um, yeah, I'll briefly say that uh, I have a second podcast. It's called The Movie Trap. It is a movie podcast. There's like a gamified aspect. You don't care about that. If you want to listen to me talk about movies, you know, go find one you like and listen to it. It's fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, listeners, I know, I know this episode has been short on goofs. If that's your complaint about it, I don't know what the fuck to tell you. Like, but amazing on information. Yeah. So, like, look, we can we can be just like, you know, haha, taint stuff all the time. But it's easy when you is. got a Victor Lustig cell in the Eiffel Tower. Oh, baby. <laughs> oh, that sweet Lustig stuff. Oh. Yeah, that was that was money. Um, well, I loved it and I learned a lot and I love talking to you guys. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining us. Um, but um, Zach, if you're ready to render your judgment. Uh, uh, it's not going to be surprising. I'm going to be honest with you. It's going to be the it's going to be the, the true history. This is like truly. There's not a lot of people in history that I uh, admire more than than this man so yeah i think i think what he did with his life speaks for itself and is has no need for uh uh any any change or alteration i I think he's really uh a 
an inspirational figure and especially in in trying times to think about this guy uh in these really dark days doing so much good do you have any reading stuff you would recommend do you have any books you would recommend about him or i was just trying to look for some yeah well anyway go look him up and read about him and then find yeah i just looked up a number of various articles and there's a few other podcasts that have episodes Mm. about him too if you want a little more of a deep dive but you could just like look on your podcast app for for ral wallenberg um uh or 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 yeah uh, i'm sure there are larger there are full books about him which i'm i'm sure i'm sure there's there's i think there is a book called wallenberg um that i have not read but uh i am i have i i came across in in reading about it a book called wallenberg uh uh and what was the name of that movie hello mr wallenberg yeah hello Goodbye, oh, good Mr. Evening. Chips. Good evening, I... Mr. Wallenberg. Yeah. Yeah. So there's Wallenberg, um, the incredible true story of a man who saved the Jews of Budapest um, by Katie Martin is one such book that you could look up. Uh, yeah, I, I think you could probably find a number of writings about this guy. Um, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of books if you want to look them up, and and there's a ton of articles online and a number of like podcast episodes. Uh, Raoul Wallenberg, Heroic Life and Mysterious Disappearance of the Man Who Saved Thousands of Hungarian Jews by Ingrid Karlberg. Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of lot of stuff out there about this guy. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was trying. I was googling Raoul Wallenberg books, and just under people also ask like was. One of the questions was, was Raoul Wallenberg a Lutheran? And I'm just like, <laughs> missing the point, dog. <laughs> just. But also, yeah, probably if he was Swedish. Swedish, yeah. 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 100%. Um, just what we're doing, book recommendations, people. Not um, not necessarily um, related to Raoul Wallenberg, but a very good book that is getting me through times like this. Um, is called Spain in Our Hearts by Adam Hochschild. Um, It primarily focuses on the American volunteers who went and fought in the Spanish Civil War. Um, in, it also talks you know, about people you'd expect from that, like George Orwell and how big of a piece of shit Ernest Hemingway is, yeah. um, which, but it's very good. Uh, Hochschild has a lot of books that talk about individuals standing up against oppressive systems. Uh, His book about the Belgian Congo is one of my favorites, King Leopold's Ghost. He also has another one called To End All Wars, which I believe I I must have referenced in our World War I series. Um, That was basically um, two narratives counterposed of like the horrors of the front lines of World War I and also the uh, pacifist movement in England at the time. so if you're looking for something to read right now that will maybe help you feel more optimistic um, or at least more less hopeless, um, I'd, I'd really recommend those. Uh, um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, this episode uh, got a little long. So it was a you know, big yes. topic. 
Um, but yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up and wrap up our con artist series. Uh, farewell, con artist. You were, you were so much fun. Who's next yeah. on your rise, uh, resistance to fascist series? Um, not sure who's next exactly. I have the short list sort of working. Zach, I actually I want to see what ideas you want to throw on that, but we can talk about that later. Um, so still sort of compiling it because like I said at the beginning, it was originally going to be pirates next, uh, but then no, the fascists had to go and do their thing. <laughs> yeah, this is better. Yeah, <laughs> so we'll get around to pirates later. Yeah, we'll get to pirates when we realize we can't we can't take another episode of talking about fascists anymore because yeah. it's so awful. But uh, I think, dear listeners, that is going to wrap us up. Uh, feel free if you're on Patreon, you can vote. Uh, yes. You can always rate and review us. Blah blah blah. Apple Podcasts they help a lot. Write something. Blah. Um, uh, if you're on Patreon, you can vote right away. If you aren't, uh, we'll have an Instagram poll the Wednesday after release where you can pick between the true and alternate history. Mm-hmm. Pick and the I, true history. Uh, yeah, it's gonna put my thumb on the scales for this one. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, all that remains is for us to thank Bridget. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Um, and Brian, uh, you usually do the, the last bit of the outro, so I'll let you, I'll let yes. you, uh, thank you, Zach. Um, uh, thank you for everyone here at the revisionists. I'm Brian Flynn. I'm Zach powers and, uh, have the best time you can right now. July 23rd, 1992. A Vatican commission led by Joseph Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, declares that limiting rights for homosexual and non-married people isn't the same as discriminating against them on the grounds that he really, really wants to keep doing it. July 23rd, 1914. Austria-Hungary issues a series of demands to Serbia in response to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Serbia accepts all but one, and Austria declares war. That one demand? Serbia's secret recipe for baked beans. July 23rd, 1900. Canada changes its immigration policy, closing its doors officially to, quote, paupers and criminals. But, you know, politely. Okay, that's all I got. I love the word poppers. Oh, I know. I kept, <laughs> I kept saying poppers, and I'm like, no, that's a, that's a different thing. <laughs> yeah. I wrote down the years and not the date. And even though you just said it several times, June, July 23, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, July 23, 1903, the Ford Motor Company sells its first car and begins its reign as the most anti-Semitic car company until Volkswagen is founded by literally Nazis. <laughs> uh, July 23, 1982, outside Santa Clarita, California, actor Vic Morrow and two children are killed when a helicopter crashes into them while shooting Twilight Zone, the movie. It's John Landis's biggest fuck up until his son. 